author Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Usually we get right into the show, but I just wanted to take a moment to talk to you all. The show is now in its 16th year. Thank you all for being here. A number of you have said that you would like to support the show. Well, now you can. If you've ever gotten enjoyment, inspiration, or information, consider becoming a patron. Just go to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, at the moment, I'm on the patio of there in Brookhaven, Atlanta, Georgia. We are here at there, and it's just a beautiful evening. We're at the very last days of summer, I guess you could say, technically now fall. I'm sitting here with Jeff Calder. He's a singer, songwriter, recording artist, performer, guitarist, saxophonist, producer, also a freelance writer, and best known as the main songwriter for the visionary pop group The Swimming Pool Cues. And uh, on a personal note, I'm a big fan of the swimming pool cues and of your songwriting. <laughs> I've often said that the album, The Royal Academy of Reality, is one of the best sounding albums I've ever heard. And very unique in terms of the songs on there. So, Jeff Calder, thank you very much for making the time. Well, thank you, Paul. That was a, Well, that record was very, took a long time to make and... I think you only get maybe one of those records <laughs> in your life. But, uh, you know, it, it took quite a while to make at a time when uh, digital, rec- well, like, that's basically an analog record, which mm. was a was quite an undertaking in, in, anyway, without any real money or much money. And, but the kind of, um, it was a foolhardy endeavor to try to make a record like that. At, at that time without any today it would be much easier to make because of the expansive recording of uh, digital of pro tools and, and so forth but I think one of the reasons that it sounds uh, unique is because uh, that it is an analog record and there is you know this the kind of precision that uh, would happen today uh, was not totally available there other than the precision of the recording engineer phil hadaway who with whom i co-produced the record he was a great recording and he is a great recording engineer and you know so you know that 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 helped but i think the kind of there's a muted aspect to some to a lot of the record it's that's i think because that it is not um it doesn't have quite the precision of a modern digital recording even though in some ways it it's it sounds like one because oh well, it's a good sounding record yeah would you say that in terms of your own creative expression is the heights of creativity found in the recording studio or is it found on stage well i have to say early on it would have been uh, with the swimming pool cues. We started in the late 1970s. Um, I, I would say that's where in the recording studio, in the in the rehearsal space and in the live 
context. When we were learning to, to be a band, learning to play as a group, I didn't really have any experience with that. Uh, before I started the swimming pool cues, I'd never been in a, a band, although certainly around a lot of um, rock music at, at, at that point. But, but you know, that's where we developed all of the early stuff that we did, you know. And, you know, we'd make, I'd, I'd make small, you know, like little demos. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we played all the time. But the swimming pool cues, when we began, were... I mean, we rehearsed almost every night of the week for several hours, and we, from the beginning, had a pretty intensive performing schedule. And so we, and we'd find ourselves in situations where we had to improvise, and it's uh, just to to get through, uh, you know, a, a lot of um, uh, club experiences. So yeah, I mean, I think that's where that was. But it, it was it took years really before we were able to look at the recording studio as anything other than something to be feared, mm -hmm. you know. And then, but I would say now uh, it would be completely different. You know, I've had recording so much recording experience, not just with the swimming pool cues, but you know, around you know uh, many other projects. And I helped to uh, manage a recording studio here in Atlanta called Southern Tracks in the uh, 2000 decade and when uh, Brendan O'Brien, the rock producer, was making a lot of records here mm. at that studio and it was a world-class facility. So, you know, even before then I was comfortable in a recording studio, but that really became my life in a lot of ways. So I don't really, I, I'm, I don't feel intimidated by the um, uh, technology of it all anymore. And I, I feel more comfortable and more creative in, in a recording situation. So I think most stories are best from the beginning. Tell us, where did your personal story begin? Where were you born? I was born in Charleston. I grew up there in the 1950s. Very um, kind of romantic, poetic childhood, uh, in, because that's the way that, that it, the place was. It was a remote, in, in many ways, a remote place at that time. You know, had had a troubled past, but it was, um, uh, the, uh, there was a, the portal that I had to the outside world was a great radio station called WTMA, AM radio station that um, what played, uh, you know, it was just a great radio station. This was in the late 50s, early 60s. And, and so I, I, from a pretty early age, I was someone who was very much into music. And, um, and pursued finding out everything that I could about music, you know, I'm, you know, eight years old, nine years old, pursuing every, at the time there was not really any, the kind of media that later developed in the, in the rock world, you know, uh, Rolling Stones. So there was nothing like that at that time. So you had to really be, you had to want it mm -hmm. to just find out about the artists that you liked, and um, so that's really where my interest in music began. But I didn't really have any kind of, um, I couldn't play an instrument. Uh, well, I didn't play an instrument when I was a young, very young person. My family moved to Florida, Central Florida in 1964. And it was a, a, a very different world, even though it was still the South, you know. 
Florida in the, 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 was the heyday of the space age. So, okay. you know, Florida was seen by comparison to Charleston, which was like, you know, growing up in the 1700s and with automobiles. Florida was much more modern in its in the in the in 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 uh, its um, the roads were new. The I four corridor, what we think of now as the I four, was a, that was a new road then. Mm-hmm. Uh, things were the suburbs were all the post World War two suburbs were new, really. Schools were great. You know, there were it was it was a somewhat different world, and and it was also a place where the the Music in that Central Florida corridor at that time, which would have been the mid '60s, was fantastic. They ran promoters ran national and groups of international renown and through that area all the time. I guess the bands wanted to, to play there, so I was, you know, Florida must must have sounded appealing to them, even though the Central Florida that you and I know was, well, Orlando was a cattle town. Yeah. Citrus phosphate pits. I mean, it wasn't necessarily glamorous and, you know, all Apollo 11 or whatever. But it was, uh, it was for a reason, it was appealing to a lot of artists. Play. So when I was a teenager, you know, I, we saw great bands. The Yardbirds, the Buffalo Springfield, the Jimi Hendrix Experience, the Dave Clark Five. You could just anything. You could just name about anybody in it. So that was, um, that's something that would never have happened where I grew up in, in Charleston. They never would have, that ne- artists like that would never have come mm-hmm. through, uh, of that stature would never have come through there. So I was, that was very fortunate for, for me to be around that. And I knew a lot of great musicians from the area. So I was, even though I didn't play an instrument, I was around th- that a lot. I went to school for a year, it's a bit of anomaly, I went to school for a year at Ma- in Macon at Mercer University in 1969. I didn't really like Macon very much, but and uh, but but uh, the Almond Brothers had were uh, essentially a local band at that point. They they uh, and I, I was exposed to the Atlanta underground music scene, uh, which was uh, you know the most you know. Uh, impressive of any city in the in the south at the even at that time so there was an underground fa- famous newspaper from atlanta called a radical paper called the great speckled bird we were able to get that paper in at mercer university and i was able to become aware of the music scene that had developed here creative music scene at that time one of the bands was the Hampton Grease Band that, uh, I, that came and performed uh, at, at the school. And, you know, I, and, and I just thought they were, it was an extremely avant-garde rock band. And they were from, you know, a, you know from here. So that, that kind of a band could have existed, you know, here. Mm. Or really anywhere in the South was a shock to me. And not that there weren't fine rock bands in Florida, or, but, you know, that, that was a really artistic rock group. So um, much later, I would get to know the musicians in that group, particularly Glenn Phillips. Through Glenn, over the course of the 1970s, I, you know, met, I was still living in Florida as a freelance writer. I met 
the members of the Swimming Pool Cues, who would become the members of the Swimming Pool Cues. Bob Elsie, who's a great, still a teenager, wonderful guitar player, and Ann Richmond Boston. And I, um, but I, I got to meet them through the Hampton Grease Band, for, through, from, through Glenn of the Hampton Grease Band. And then later, much later than that, in 1996, I was the supervisor, reissue supervisor for their album, Music to Eat, which was, you know, a real, you know, a breakthrough record to, to me anyway. Mm -hmm. And it was an important record to the Atlanta music world just for the sheer creativity of it and, I, and, and the inspiration that it had, I believe, for local artists mm -hmm. to be, um, to not worry about being anything much other than original. And I think really that paves the way for the development of the uh, new wave and punk worlds here you know, just that just general atmosphere mm -hmm. over over the ninth course of the earlier part of the 1970s. I think that really paves the way for Atlanta, and of course Athens being so receptive to a you know a burgeoning art music new wave world in, later in the 1970s. That's really where we came from. Mm -hmm. I'd gone to the University of Florida in the early 70s to. I was an English student. I studied with, um, I was in the novelist Harry Cruz's creative writing class. He, he wasn't that well known at the time, but it later became a, you know, a, a famous writer. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he was a great teacher. He was very funny. And he, you know, my, my idea of what a writer was, I wanted to be a writer. So my, it, was, it was not Harry Cruz, but being around him was a, um, and big, um, you know, a, so a really energizing, you know, he was a writer. He got up every day, wrote, published, you know, it was like, I can't say that I really knew, had known a writer before, before then. But anyway, I, I, that was the early 1970s. And, and at Gainesville at the time had a very strong rock music world with um, uh, the band Tom Petty's and the Heartbreakers, proto Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers band, and a, a number of other groups, but it was a kind of an exciting little rock scene, like college town rock scene. And um, so, anyway, I left uh, school there in 1973, and for the whole middle 70s, I was a freelance rock writer living in Central Florida, which means I didn't really do much of anything at all. <laughs> but I had, you know, I got to, you know, I was serious about it. And I'd always wanted to have a rock band, but, you know, like I said, I really had to sort of teach myself how to play the guitar so I could, nobody was going to, I was the word guy, right? I was the guy with, you know, who's going to, the word, you don't, you don't, <laughs> nobody wanted the word guy, you know, it was, I'm just sort of standing on the sidelines and it was hard to convince anybody that to, you know, like start a band or whatever. It was only a city like Atlanta at that time where you could find musicians that would want to be part of that and mm -hmm. also to have any kind of a, an audience for mm -hmm. what you're doing and I eventually moved here but before that in, in the mid 70s you know I was I was a good rock writer and I knew uh, and I was serious about it and I you know been to New York several times I'd done some freelance stringing for Charles M Young who was Rolling Stones the best writer Rolling Stone had after Hunter Thompson, the Hunter Thompson era. 
and he was the only writer at Rolling Stone that really was into punk and new wave music. He did the first profiles of um, big profiles of the what emerging new new wave groups, and I knew Lester Bangs and a lot of the writers who were the um, kind of leading lights. It was, that was a, that was a feel that was very exciting at that time, mm-hmm. you know and. In the uh, case of Bang, Lester Banks, it was somebody who I, I think really was using a rock music as a a platform for for just being a writer, mm-hmm. and for and as opposed to being simply a rock writer. You know, it was a anyway. It was a a vibrant period for for that. I eventually went a an, another direction and decided to move to Atlanta and, and start the swimming pool cues. So take us back to coming to Atlanta. I know just in the last 10 years, Atlanta has changed so, so much. What, what were you seeing? What, what was it like through your eyes? What were you feeling when you moved here? Well, you know, I had $75 and um, I moved into the a garage behind in Brookhaven, probably just only about four minutes from here, um, uh, uh, the garage of my friend Bill Ray, uh, Bill Ray's house. Bill is, you know, a, a, you know, like a virtuoso fretless bass player who has, has played with Glenn Phillips for decades. And um, so I knew uh, uh, Bill and I, so I stayed in this garage with a dirt floor for the first year that I was here. But it was... Um, you know, just a really exciting period of time because, you know, when I moved here, I didn't really uh, know that there was any, you know, there, there were only a handful of bands that would have been, you would have thought were like new wave or punk or post-punk bands um, more than any other city in the South. But nevertheless, you know, it was a relatively small uh, scene looking back. Uh, and But it was a... a a committed, you know, uh, world, and there were so many great bands a- at that time. There were some, um, the Brains, which had uh, uh, my friend Tom Gray was the main songwriter for the Brains. They had a, a hit with "Money Changes Everything." Cindy Lauper later recorded the song, and you know it was a great kind of a, a electronic um, rock group. Um, the Fans. Um, in in within Atlanta, the you know a, a lot of groups that were the basics. I mean, I I mean, I you know a, a dozen bands, but also I, I we didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about a an Athens music scene that was emerging. So when I arrived here, you know the B fifty twos were just starting to get a uh, some a renown, and um, and 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 you know eventually uh, by the end of the decade you began to see. Pylon, Love Tractor, and REM, and you know all, all those sorts of things. So I mean, you you know, it was a really uh, unique situation to just to, to walk into, and the swimming pool cues. You know, we became a uh, a major part of that. You know, at uh, that world, and within less than a year, we were playing. Um, we were playing whatever clubs would let. A new wave or a punk band in there weren't many, <laughs> but we were playing um, 
local venues. But we were also opening. Uh, our first gig was in June of 1978, and by December of that year, we were we were we played with the B-52s. We opened for Devo at the Agora Ballroom, a great venue, um, and you know we were we were playing with um, national acts. So, I mean, it was like, you know, for at least for somebody like me who'd never even been on stage before, that was, a you know, a pretty big, big, I mean, you just had to sort of, you just had to kind of do it. You know, you, yeah. didn't, you didn't really know what, we didn't really know what we were doing. But we did start out, we were a band that really pursued playing regionally at a time when that was, you know, not you know, anything that was, that was practical at all, because there was no regional punk or new wave circuit, you know, we, but we were fortunate and just sort of like bullheaded and we kind of put together in Florida, sat in the Carolinas and so forth, we put, put, put together a, um, a, you know, I, I guess kind of a, a circuit like that, uh, you know, where one didn't exist. And, you know, for the first few years of the swimming pool cues, we played with many great artists. We toured uh, the South with the police in the spring of 1979, played a half dozen dates, you know, uh, with them. And, um, you know, it was then, and, you know, that you began, you could see that, you know, there is actually a possibility that you could, you know, really do this because there were people coming to the shows mm -hmm. and so that really gave us that really gave us a lot of um, momentum and um, eventually put our first record out in 1981 first album I should say and that was the deep end right now when you think about the swimming pool cues and their sound now how would you describe to the listeners how the sound has changed going from the deep end to now well the deep end all of the early material we did was um, probably because I was a writer it was all the a lot of the early material was very satirical mm. you know it was funny it was um, you know had an edge to it and you know it was we were satirizing the world around us and but um, you know, by the time we make uh, our first major label record in 1984, which is called the Swimming Pool Cues, there's already a, cha a, a big change has taken place because, you know, as a songwriter, I was I went from somebody who, you know, pursued this other thing to somebody who was writing songs for a female voice as well. Those songs had a different personality, and I was I had to learn how to to do that. They were more melodic and they had a good great deal more emotional content. And that's something that I didn't really know much of anything about. I mean that, you know, that's mostly that's usually where rock musicians start. Mm -hmm. That isn't you know that wasn't me. You know, I had I, I uh, became more of a songwriter that was interested in that. But, 
you know, most songwriters and rock musicians I know, they start from the, the from a, uh, at least I knew during that era, they started from a point of view of, you know, I mean, you talking about Tom Petty in the early 70s, all of the musicians I knew in Florida were like that. They were, you know, he was a very soulful singer. Mm. And all of the musicians that came out of the 60s and rock musicians, 60s and 70s, they had a real strong component. There was no reason for them to be doing what they were doing other than to project this feeling. That wasn't me. So I had to, you know, eventually, over the course of the first five years of the swimming pool cues, as I was developing this song for Anne, songs for Anne Boston to sing, I had to, I, I, became more of that kind of um of a, of a songwriter and i guess a conceptualist or whatever it whatever my role happened mm. to be so that's where you see the transition of the swimming pool cues and then leafing forward and you know say to the royal cat across the blue tomorrow in 1986 which is a very cerebral record to um royal academy of reality which came out in 2003 i think yeah that record you can see that this there is a more of a cerebral and uh, poetic intention. It's not that that wasn't there in the very early days. Like on the deep end, there are tracks like the A bomb woke me up, overheated, yeah. and that are that are 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 that that way. You know, uh, more that way. But by the t- you know m- you know leaving of course decades, I think that that it's fair to say that we're much more of a. Uh, Cerebral kind of band, I suppose. I mean, I don't know how. How would you describe the Royal Academy of Reality? I mean, it's you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. but I don't know that. Definitely super. Cere- it's a lush. That's a lush, lush record, and really the origins of that are with our experience making our album Blue Tomorrow in 1980, 86, which was a you know for a a band like the Swimming Pool Cues, it was shocking that we were working with a British producer that made a, we made a 48 track record, which, you know, at the time was like, what, what is that? What, what? (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, major artists weren't working in that kind of expanded format. And so, you know, what we learned doing, making that, all the things we learned making that record in 1986, we were able to, eventually take advantage of those skills by the time we made the Royal Academy of Reality, which we started maybe in 1993, something like that, recording. So I think that is pretty much, you know, the, uh, I don't know if anybody listening to that, what I just said would have any idea <laughs> what, you know, what, if that describes our evolution. I definitely would say, I mean, you could find poetry in the first recordings, but you're right. I would think of the Royal Academy of Reality album as far more poetical. Is poetical a word? Yes, it is. (laughs) It is. Okay. I have to ask, because when I was thinking of these... I should say that that was all there by by our first A&M record, because... There you really see Ann Boston beginning to emerge and, and uh, as, you know, a real force, a great singer. Uh, and 
and the songs that she sang were, you know, they dealt with, they, they, I mean, I think that they were, you know, there was a real language factor there that, you know, and, you know, trying to make, you know, these, you know, the somewhat complicated lyrically and, and try to make them, you know, trying to get that across melodically. That, that was the real challenge mm -hmm. for the band at, at that point. And when you look at songs like Some New Highway from that record and Purple Rivers, Silver Slippers that she, she sang, those are, you know, you know, those are, were real, very challenging. And, and I think um, that anyway, you, that, that's really in that period of time, that's where you see that I think you can see the point of departure mm -hmm. for the swimming pool cues. This might be a difficult question. If you had to pick a song that you wrote that you would say is your strongest work, which one would it be? Well, and, and, and addressing the, what, what, what I was just mentioning from that period of time, I really like Wreck Around from Blue Tomorrow. I think that was a real strong piece of work. That was a, a breakthrough track for us. And um, it was a... Um, you know, I think that was a really good piece of work, and it had all of the. Um, it was what we were trying to do, you know, which was you know not easy. You know that record, the we had, the prior record we made with you know a great production team. I had Stasium as the engineer and associate producer, who uh, I I should mention that I'm still working with recently on a project we can talk about, but, um, uh, and the great David Anderley, who was the producer who'd signed the band to A&M. He was somebody that went back to the, he worked with the Beach Boys. He had signed the Mothers of Invention to MGM. He had worked with the, the he'd set up the Beach Boys record company, Brother Records. He was a major figure in West Coast rock music world of the 1960s. And that was a great production team. But with Mike Howlett, who had, uh, was a British producer, you know, he, the kind of record that Blue Tomorrow was, was not a record that American rock bands at the time made. And because it was really important in the world in which we moved to uh, constantly be demonstrating uh, authenticity, um, kind of a street, you know, uh, streetish kind of punk vibe that was, you know, it just seemed like the band was going in the studio and, you know, playing just like the way they did live. And, you know, you didn't, you didn't want to dress it up too much. They were, you were always subject to charges of overproduction, so on and so forth. And we just sort of threw all that out the window with that record. And that was, a, I, for me, that was a really good thing because, you know, it was at that point, it was like, hey, when you go in the studio to make a record, you're making a record. You're not, you're not, it isn't like you're at the roadhouse, you know, and, and we didn't really know how to, to do that. That's what we, you know, that's kind of what we learned with that record, that you're making an album. You're not simply documenting how you are as a band. I mean, I think the record has plenty of energy, but it's like, you know, we, uh, that was an, you know, and that is, you know, one of the reasons we were able to make the Royal Academy reality many years later is that we knew we were making a record. Mm. And 
But I think, you know, at the same time, I think making records with just, you know, documenting how you a band is live, that's a completely, there are many different ways to make an album. And um, I think that there's not one that's more valid or uh, better than, than another. You know, I, I think <laughs> taking the group in and recording the first take of every track and just, you know, that's it is... That's totally legitimate to me. But on the other hand, you have to learn to make records uh, this other way. And that's um, simply the product of experience, I think, and, and, you know, in time. You know, it's like, you know, I think you know what I'm, I think what I'm saying. There's one song from the Swimming Pool Cues that the first time I heard it, I've just always been enchanted. And I'm hoping you can tell me what inspired The Wheel of the Sun. Love that song. Well, that's an interesting track in that Mo Tucker plays the drum, or the Velvet Underground plays the, the drum on. I was going to say drums. She plays the drum on, <laughs> on that track. That is song is like the, that's an example of the poetic side of that record. That's like Lucretius. On the nature of things, from I don't know when that book, in the early, like 200 A.D. or whatever, whenever that book was written. But on the nature of things is a book of, or it's, you know, it's one of the great masterpieces of expressions of human, um, human, civil, you know, our civilization, and it's about the natural world. Lucretius didn't believe in God. He didn't, you know, he was a, like something like an atheist today. But, you know, he believed in the natural world. And that, that long poem is, a, uh, is his, you know, you know th this is Lucretius's version of what reality is. And The Wheel of the Sun is uh, a recording that um, uh, is um, very much in that mode of expression, I think. And I don't, what else about it? I can't, you know, I'm, it has a double harpsichord solo. Yes. <laughs> Which you don't hear all the time. <laughs> no, you don't hear it. And believe me, I can remember recording it like it was yesterday and it was not, it was quite a challenge, you know. And the, <laughs> that we had a, a local bagpipe player come in. He was a terrific guy, and he insisted on um, you know he showed up in the kilt the whole the whole bit right you know and uh, to play the the bagpipe and you forget about forget about trying to tune a bagpipe you yeah know, they're they're like they don't have the same kind of scale of as a regular instrument. So you just have to keep recording as many tracks as you can just to kind of bend it maybe into tune. I can't say we ever successfully did that. But when he was recording it, he insisted on marching around the studio as though he were in a field, you know, <laughs> you know, at, <laughs> we've, we, we just, you know. We chased him around with the microphone as long as we could. We finally said, man, you got to stay in one place because it's, we're, you know, recording this. Uh, <laughs> I'll never think of the song the same way. <laughs> Just like, yeah. But, um, 
but I, I think the wheel of the sun is a, is a song that really um, is uh, uh, you know I guess it's a signature song for the record in that it expresses what the, to me the Royal Academy of Reality was about, which was just about uh, poetic reality, and that's what the world of the the, the scenes the scene of Wheel of the Sun is is kind of about. Is there something that ideally you hope the listener gets from the experience of hearing the swimming pool cues? Uh, you know, I don't know. You know, I, I'd like to think that, um, that they, the, that they got the impression that we were committed, <laughs> a, commi- <laughs> a committed artists, you know, and, uh, I can't really, you know, think of any single impression that we try to get across other than that. I mean, I'm really fortunate in that I became associated with such great musicians. You know, Anne is a tremendous singer. Bob Elsie, to me, is one of the greatest guitar players to ever come out of Georgia. And, you know, I didn't really have any of those skills. I had to develop as a as a guitar player, as a musician, and I didn't really have that kind of a background. I we came along at a time when a lot of the people who were in the the world that we were moving in were people who didn't have musical backgrounds. When you look at well, the B-52s, I mean, you know, a tremendous band, but you know, they really had more of an you know art art background, pylon, you know, they were all, in pylon, they were all artists, and uh, to, me, to me, and, you know, they were painterly, or, you know, when you look, Patti Smith, Tom Verlaine, television, Richard Hell, these were people who were, had more literary intentions, and they just drifted into what they were doing musically, I guess, you know, and that, you know, that, that, that's where I came from. And so I, the only smart decision, I guess, that I made was to be around people who weren't like me. One guy in a band like me is like, you don't need any more than, you don't need any more guys that can't play. So, um, you know, I got, I got better, but I was, you know, I mean, the very first record, Robert Schmid plays the drums. He plays bass with the swimming pool cues now. And, you know, he was a, you know, He's a great drummer and musician, and you know uh, our drummer Billy Burton. Bill's been with us since 1982. We could never have made any of those the records that we did after the Deep End without him. I mean, he's a, such a tremendously groovy drummer, and he was able to give all of these um, what had been my quirky, quirkier tendencies of the band to kind of give it all continuity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's still, he's still that guy, you know. I mean, it's a remarkably stable lineup. I mean, we've been together over 40 years, and I think it's, by most standards, a remarkably stable lineup. But I would, you know, I, I, do, I want people to know how good I think that they are. Yeah, I mean, the, the swimming pool cues really stood out from the beginning as being capable players and unique musicians. And, you know, I think that's evident, you know, on 
the recorded material and when the band play performs live it's you know i think it's clear what would you credit this longevity to i mean it could be said about some bands here today gone later today <laughs> you know but yeah. the swimming pool cues four decades well you know i think um a lot of it is the attitude i mean we started as a most of the groups from the world that we came from were art projects that just got a little bit out of hand and got more and somehow got serious and that, that is you know where we can when you look at all of these bands that are you look at the b-52s I mean, they're still playing. REM, they're still very active musicians. I'm sure the band will be playing again. But I mean, you're talking about, you know, all of these groups from that period got together for, I mean, what distinguishes the generation that began in the late 1970s in the South, for instance, new creative pop musicians, is that you know we got into doing it for artistic reasons mm -hmm. and not for, for for reasons that were different from what the prior generation of rock bands got together for so i think that's really what sustains you're talking about the longevity i think that is a large part of what sustains a band like the swimming pool cues or uh, the other artists that i i mentioned you know it's like that that's the reason why we got into it not necessarily to be from a glamorous inception. I mean, you know, when you're 15 years old and you're in a rock band, you want to be a big star. That's not what, you know, by the time we started as a band, you know, we, that's not, that wasn't what was motivating. It wasn't what was motivating me in any case. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just, you know, trying to express whatever little ideas that I had lyrically and and in as unique a fashion as possible. So I think that that plays a, uh, that's a big part of, of it. But I'm sure the Who thinks the same thing, you know. That was a band that started with a, became a really big, powerful rock band, but, you know, that was a band that was a, you know, that was an art school band, mm -hmm. you know. And they're, I mean, they've been together for 50 years or more, you know, but... I think that's what's plus in the case of the swimming pool cues you have to know when to kind of let people alone a little bit you know mm. you, you're talking about people growing up in a becoming adults in you know, a a rock music situation this is not normal you know and they have to people have to grow up and at, at certain points, you have to know to kind of like let them do that and not be, as a band leader, to, to not be ter so demanding, you know, on the personalities involved. And uh, it, it, that is not easy to do because you're always trying to push things forward. But, you know, you just have to, you, know, you can't be yelling at people all the time. You have to make it as pleasant of an experience as and as fun of an experience as, as possible. What would you say has been the most meaningful compliment you've received as a result of the work that you create? I, well, I, I, I'm, I'm sure like most artists, people come up to you and tell you how important that whatever it is that you have done 
musically has been in their lives, you know, for whatever reason. They've been moved by that in some way. I don't know that you can expect too much more than that. Yeah. Really. It's a huge compliment. It is. Yeah. It, it's, it is. You know, I mean, that, that people still come to see you perform after so many years means that that is something that has, um, obviously that's happened for, you know, I mean, I don't think it's exclusively for nostalgic reasons, mm -hmm. you know, but, you know, it's, it's nice. <laughs> what is the best thing about being Jeff Calder? <laughs> Let me tell you, there's nothing really that great about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, the, the best thing is that I've just been able to keep doing it yeah. and keep being creative. I would like to think so anyway, you know, that I, uh, that I, and that I'm con sort of con always, uh, I'm able to continually um, try to uh, reach a little further and you know, try and make whatever it is I'm reaching for a reality. It, it's not always that, it's not that easy. To do that, but you know, I'm an active person, and I uh, enjoy working with other people. So th that I'm able to do that—that's just like whatever, whatever that drive is. That, that you know what—that's the best thing about being me. <laughs> to me, is that I'm able to that I'm. I, I, I still want to do that. Mm -hmm. I still have that um, belief or, or um, you know feeling. How would you define Jeff Calder? Who is Jeff Calder? Just a writer, musician, you know. I, not has any nothing's changed for me since I was very little. <laughs> I liked pop music, clothing, and reading. That was that that was it. Nothing really. That's the thread, you know, that has run through my life, and uh, you know that. I don't think that that's a very practical, you know what, the impracticality of that is the, uh, that's the, that's the real continuity here <laughs> for me, you know what I mean? Uh, it's like, I mean, I guess you have to be practical about some things, but that is not a practical pursuit. Yeah. And, you know, you find yourself, I think, um, at different varying times, isolated from uh, your peer group and your contemporaries in, in that kind of a lifestyle. And that's not really that bad, but, you know, that's, um, that is not the... Most people have more uh, sensible concerns. Yeah. You know, and I think... Um, which is good, because I, that's, I like being around people with sensible concerns. <laughs> it's got regular jobs... I'm envious, you know, they, the way their lives are structured. Yeah. You know, I'm, in many ways, I'm envious of that. But I don't know if I answered your question, but... You yeah. did very, very well, actually. <laughs> you know, and you really touched on something very interesting. There have been times in my life where I've been pursuing something that's not very practical. And people living very, very practically, who are pursuing very practical things, say, "Oh man, I'm envious of Th that's you." That's right. They want this word. <laughs> and I'm thinking, 
What? You, you don't, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't want. To. You don't. You don't want to go down this road. No, no <laughs> absolutely. I always like to end the interview. I like to just give the guests the stage. So, in closing, we've been joined by Jeff Calder, the swimming pool cues. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Well, um, I would say that you know just to keep tuned in because I'm hoping that we are able to release a whole new body of work sometime in the next few years, providing we can get end money and to begin, if you follow me, and be able to fund um, the project. But that's to stay tuned into that, because I think that um, I'm hoping that we're able going to be able to do that. Wonderful. Jeff Calder. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Until next time. Yes. Goodbye.